This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here. Today's podcast is coming out on a different day. I happened to do this recording with Dr. Mark Levecki yesterday, the day that the unfortunate challenges are happening between Russia and Ukraine. And we were talking about just war theory, and we couldn't help but kind of lead the conversation to talk about this current situation. So instead of having new content come out on Thursdays, I have two coming back, uh, two pieces coming out on consecutive days. Yesterday, on Thursday, I had a piece come out with Dr. David Schreiner where we talked about violence in the book of Joshua, Old Testament kind of ideas of genocide and how to think about that. And then today, this podcast with Mark Lebecki talking about just war theory and then talking about Russia and Ukraine and the way to approach this from a just war perspective. So I think you'll find this really interesting and challenging, but I hope you'll hang in there for it. It's definitely worth it. Just want to encourage people that if you're interested in some of the things that are happening from this content at andymillerthird.com our YouTube channel, our podcast channels. There is a free resource if you join my email list where you, if you go to my website, Andy Miller andymillerii.com, I'll send you a free tool to use in your own preaching and teaching ministry. It's an exegetical tool that helps you in that exegetical process develop ideas for presenting scripture in a faithful way, but also in a creative way. So I think you'll find that helpful. That's a four-page document that's available for you if you sign up for my email list. So you can check that again out again at my website. Also, our thanks to our sponsors, WPO Development and Bill Roberts for making this podcast platform happen. Now, on to this interview with Dr. Mark Lebecki. God bless you. Well, we're here at the More to the Story podcast, and I'm delighted to have Mark Lebecki on the podcast with me. He is the McDonald Distinguished Scholar for Ethics, War, and Public Life at the Providence Journal, which is connected to the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I've appreciated the work I've seen from you for a couple of years now. There's not many people who kind of cross over into the theological space and biblical space and are talking about public life and from a just war perspective. So I imagine this has generated a lot of friends for you. (laughs) Complete. Everybody's in complete agreement with me. They're so happy that I'm doing what I'm doing. That's right. Nobody disagrees. It's such a peaceful field to enter into. So I don't like um, conflict, so I entered something easy. There you go. Well, and there's not many, uh, like to even describe yourself as a just war scholar or somebody who's thinking right. about public uh, public policy from a scholarly perspective. I mean, you're, you're not necessarily a politician. So uh, tell me about this field. Like how can, how do you become a just war scholar? Oh, how do you become one? Uh, I became one uh, through a study of the Holocaust. Okay. I mean, if you, if, you, if, you, if you want to go way back, um, you know, me. You know, I was I was raised in a in a you know quasi Catholic household. Okay. Uh, you know, but mostly Easter, Christmas, you know, church attendance, that sort of thing. None of it really took. But I had a strong sense of justice. I go uh, all the way back to a memory of when I was about four years old, uh, and uh, walked down the stairs in my house in Michigan. My dad was watching television, and on screen there was a man who. You know, very matted hair, big tangled beard, uh, and doing some sort of backbreaking labor. And I now realize he was doing galley work. He was in a, a slave ship, you know, rowing. Wow. And the man was scary. So I asked my dad, you know, why is that man in chains? And my dad says, well, he's a thief. He stole something and, and they caught him and they put him in prison. And at four years old, this made complete sense to me. I thought, well, you do something wrong, you get caught, you get punished. Yeah. You know, yeah. the world is as it ought to be. And so I said, he's a bad man. 
And I remember my father kind of sizing me up and he said, well, he stole bread because his family was hungry and he couldn't find work, although he tried. And in order to end their hunger, he broke a bakery store window, stole the bread, and he was caught and put in prison for it and ended up spending 20 years of his life there. And so I had what I now consider the first great intellectual response of my life. I burst into tears. I ran upstairs. I crawled <laughs> under my bed and I, I cried, wow. which, I, which I still defend is a completely appropriate thing for a four-year-old to do when their innocence has now been shattered. Right, right. And, you know, of course, if, you know, your attentive listeners probably know that that's the story of Les Miserables and Jean Valjean and all of that. So had I stuck around, probably right. most of my childhood would have been a little bit happier, but I didn't stick <laughs> around to the, the end of the story. It just saw that bit and it jostled me. Um, and I didn't think this then, but uh, since then, I've been given a paradigm maybe to, to analyze what I had experienced. And it's been called the naive impression of evil. And if some people have read my stuff, they probably read about me uh, writing about this. But the naive impression isn't a pejorative, like we use the term naive nowadays. Um, and it's an original sort of understanding. Naive simply meant something that was untutored or untaught, something you didn't need to learn. You simply knew. Right, right. And so there is a naive impression to evil. It's sort of like the, the sudden shudder one feels at cold. Right. And what the naive impression dictates is that you are suddenly aware that what ought not to be is, and we can call this evil. Mm. You're aware of what ought not to be is. You're aware that you uh, prefer what ought to be, and you yeah. want somebody to remedy it. And I experienced all those three things sitting in the basement in in you know my childhood home I, I didn't couldn't have articulated right, right. that was there you fast forward I'm a college student I think I'm an atheist maybe an agnostic I don't know but I foolishly for an atheist who wants to hold on to his atheism I start to study the holocaust interesting and uh as a I means no of trying to like prove uh the you know that god doesn't exist or yeah, was that it, part it, of it or? that's insightful it, it became that a little bit um I I I started here I'm going to stutter because I, I don't know. Providence, yeah, yeah, maybe, sure. right? Um, but I was all the way through high school into college. I was always interested in, in I was a heavy reader. And I typically was drawn toward uh, stories about life at the margins. So, you know, combat memoirs, which probably, you know, began to predate some of my, my military interests. Um, you know, life in, in prison, concentration camps, these sorts of things. So with an opportunity to study the Holocaust full time for an, an interim, it was gonna be several hours a day for a month. When that opportunity presented itself, I jumped at it. It became a way of torturing my Christian friends because I would say to them that the existence of Auschwitz poses seemingly insurmountable problems for your theism. Sure. But over the course of studying Auschwitz, I had a wise and belligerent Christian friend uh, who challenged me that I didn't have the categories uh, to adjudicate between good and evil. I didn't have the categories to adjudicate between right and wrong. Um, right. It was just my opinion versus Nazi opinion. And, wow. you know, I, I, I had no cause to shake my fist at Auschwitz and say, God damn this, although yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I said. And, and I say that not to horrify your listeners, no, no. but as a confession, that was the unwitting prayer of an atheist. I wanted something to condemn right. this thing. And I wanted my fist shaking at Auschwitz to say something about Auschwitz and not about me or just wow. about me, right? I wanted it to be objective. And my Christian friend, who was a biology professor at St. Olaf College, John Giannini, uh, 
he convinced me that I had no categories to wow. hate Auschwitz. So I sometimes say I became a Christian because I wanted to hate well. Wow. Um, and what I discovered was that unlike the barb that I threw at my Christian friends that the existence of Auschwitz poses seemingly insurmountable problems for your theism, what I discovered was that my hatred of the existence of Auschwitz poses truly insurmountable problems for my atheism. Wow. Yeah. So I became a Christian eventually. That still took some time. Uh, but in the course right, of going through- to realize the existence of the moral law. Oh, absolutely. And, and, that, and, and in that in itself, like the foundation for having any morality in the universe that wasn't just subjective. All it all suddenly made sense. The fact yeah. that you lock up a man for stealing bread to feed his family and all the injustices that were wrapped around that. Auschwitz, the treatment of, you know, everyday basic inconsiderations toward other people, the whole bit of it, all of it began to make sense when you looked at it originally through something like a natural law filter, and then eventually through the Gospels. Um, and the fact that, you know, there was a remedy, um, and that I wouldn't be the remedy, no matter how strong or powerful or winsome or whatever I could become, I wouldn't be the remedy to that. Um, but I become a Christian, and, and I had fled overseas after college graduation to partially try to get away from the gospel. I hadn't read, you know, anything about Jonah. I didn't know you couldn't uh, go overseas <laughs> and escape God, but I tried. So I go to Slovakia, and in the course of being in Slovakia, I began, uh, I, I became a Christian. I started uh, working at this foundation that was run by a bunch of old Bible smugglers. And one of the things we would do is to take people up through Auschwitz-Birkenau, which was just a, a four and a half hour drive away. And uh, in the course of taking some Christian groups through Auschwitz, they would wonder aloud what Christians ought to do about political evil because, after all, we're pacifists, and there's nothing that seems practical in response to truly political evil. And I remember I'm a young Christian, and I had already gotten over the trauma of thinking I couldn't have a beer with my dad, uh, but now I'm confronted with the possibility that all of a sudden I might have to be a pacifist. I'm like, ah. Oh. So I studied this, and I discovered, much to my sort of uh, truculent you know, relief, uh, that's not the that's not the only Christian option, and it's arguably not even the predominant Christian option. So I ran into this thing called the Just War Tradition, uh, which argued that yes, in fact, you you can, and in fact, you ought to respond to political evil, um, but you can't do it just any old way. Um, there's a there's a carefully prescribed way that one ought to do that that's consistent with loving your enemies, and here's what it is. And so that's that's a very long answer to your very short question, but that's how I became. A just war scholar. Yes, it's so interesting. So, like, I look, think about this idea, even this naive understanding of evil being connected, and like, and the oughts of the universe, like that the, right. the universe ought to be a certain way. This is a, a part of the moral fabric of what we're doing. It. It reminds me too of even Alvin Plantinga's uh, discussion of a basic belief in God, like in a similar way that we have a basic belief in morality. That there's also just a basic understanding that's intuitive to folks. And so he's built a whole whole system around that. And I think it's like a, a very similar idea. Now, he, here's the interesting thing. Uh, where did where did that then turn to actual – I want to get into what just war theory is. But where mm -hmm. did that turn into actual uh, academic study for you? Yeah, good question. So I had a BA in literature. I'm over in Slovakia. Um, I went there for a year. I stayed for 12. Wow. Uh, and in the course of that, you know, I began to realize, you know, probably someday I want to be married. Probably someday I should be able to feed my children. And so you start to think, 
a little bit more practically, I think I was living on at most over those 12 years, I was Natural able to live on $700 a month, right? It's, yeah. It was just a, it was a great place to be poor. Uh, and so, and I also realized in the course of teaching at this institute where we did a lot of theological instruction, it was fashioned a little bit like a labrie in that people could come to us, ask questions, do their own research, but we had a kind of a prescribed curriculum. And there was just a lot of gaps in my theological knowledge. Uh, and so I did a, a distance learning course, uh, did an MA in systematic and historical theology at Wheaton. And over the course of doing that, um, ran into a book uh, by Richard Hayes, uh, The Moral Vision of the New oh, Testament, right. and ran into the chapter on, uh, uh, chapter, I guess, on war, or no, chapter on violence, but but essentially war. And um, yeah, I had a very strong reaction against it, and wrote a term paper against it. Uh, and began to realize that one, you know, I've got some pretty strong views of pacifism, just war, um, political ethics, military ethics, and then just receiving a lot of positive feedback from professors saying, you know, look, this, this seems to be your thing, you should consider this. And that led to uh, wanting to go back to Eastern Europe, but I was in Chicago finishing up the MA. Um, we had a, a son at the time, my wife and I, young boy. Um, so open to what the future was. So just in case academic work was in my future, I sent off a couple applications, one to Jean Beth Gielstein, who was a just war scholar, public theologian at the University of Chicago. Um, and lo and behold, got into the University of Chicago. And that was that they offered a good deal. And it made sense to stay. An opportunity to study with her was not to be missed. Um, Right. I, I recognize her name. I'll admit that I don't always know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I pronounce it Jean Bethke Elstein. Um, I've heard it's been pronounced a number of ways. I think she Very said good. Jean Bethke Elstein, but gotcha. Bethke. I'll so. trust you on that. So this tradition, um, many people would say, and it seems like a popular thing, kind of like uh, red letter Christianity comes out and there's a, a nice emphasis in youth ministry with people like Tony Campolo and then followed up by somebody like Shane Claiborne. And then it made its way into even my seminary curriculum, not at Wesley Biblical Seminary, just so you know, but that there's like this, um, uh, a, a, the kind of intellectual side of that tradition comes from somebody like Stanley Hauerwas, right. um, Will Williman. This is kind of like the, but but more Stanley Hauerwas, like the kind of proponent in my tradition, in the kind of the broad Wesleyan tradition of a pacifist position. And I think that that's incredibly popular. I think there's a lot of like more popular voices that seem to say, well, this is what Jesus did. Jesus wouldn't want us to hurt our enemies. Like, what's the deal? And so I'm just curious, what is, I mean, how is it? People will say, and probably to this, I have I've, people have already responded to me when I've been saying anything just war. There's no such thing. Right. So talk to me about just war theory. Yeah. So, okay. So there's a lot there. Uh, I'll go through the theory. And okay. then if there's follow-up questions on Stan and, and other folks, we can, we can jump into those. Sure. Um, so, you know, look, every, every great civilization and probably uh, most lesser civilizations from time immemorial have recognized that when they send their sons um, and sometimes daughters off to war uh, to kill and risk being killed, there ought to be some sort of justification for that right. at a bare minimum. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's cultural pride. Maybe it's, you know, getting into Valhalla and, and, and the enhancement of warrior prowess. Maybe it's the defense of neighbors, whatever it is, there's usually some sort of justification we go through. So the just war tradition in one sense is simply 
um, the means by which the West has, and predominantly the West, uh, by which the West has predominantly thought about the justifications for when it is right to fight and how it is right to fight that war that's right to fight, right? Okay. Um, it was arguably codified. I, I place it in, in you know, the early Middle Ages. Thomas Aquinas was the first who, who gave us any sort of an articulation of what is now recognizably a just war framework. It didn't start with Thomas. He looked back to Augustine. Right. Augustine himself looked back to classical um, writings. You see it in Cicero. Uh, but there's just the sense that there have to be at least two categories uh, when it comes to thinking about conflict. And the first is, when is it right to fight? Um, and this will be cast as the "us ad bellum," which is just a Latin phrase for, um, you know, justice toward war. When is it right to fight? And and then the second category, and then I'll break these down individually. Uh, the second category is the "us in bello," you know, justice within war. Um, how do you fight that that war that's right to fight? Um, and one caveat at the beginning is arguably because uh, when you talk about just war. Um, that's a lofty claim, and it can be defended in numerous cases. A slightly less lofty claim is justified war. Mm. And in one sense, that's really what the just war is trying to articulate. Um, it makes a claim that sounds all encompassing that this is a just war. Uh, but if you ask a, a good just war scholar to elaborate, they will hopefully say something like, look, to the best of our ability to know, as we are given to know, the facts on the ground, this particular war seems more justified to pursue um, than not to pursue, mm -hmm. right? It, it carries the basic claim um, that, you know, it, look, if war can sometimes be justified, then in those cases, peace, and here defined very thinly is simply the, the absence of conflict, peace can sometimes not be justified. Um, so it's a, it's it's it all at its best to be a, a very modest claim. It's not trying to claim omniscience. It's just saying, look, we have to act in history, either act or not act. You know, both are actions, and and here's how we adjudicate it. So with that caveat out of the way, the use in ad bellum, when is it right to fight? It's typically broken into three major, what's sometimes called deontological categories. These three things have to be in place for it to be a justified war. And the first is that there has to be a sovereign. Um, with the who is a legitimate authority to be able to claim the right to fight. Um, and the sovereign is simply he or she over whom there is no one greater charge with the care of the political community. And this is a, an effort to prevent, you know, just anybody from being able to declare war against anybody else. It has to be legitimate authority. The second is a just cause. And the just cause is typically broken into three categories. Um, you know, there you you can fight when you have to protect the innocent. You can fight to take back what's been wrongly taken, or to or to right an injustice, uh, and you can fight to punish evil. And all of those things are 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 qualified. Um, you know, you 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 fight to protect the sufficiently threatened innocent. Uh, you fight to correct you know um, a particularly egregious wrong. Uh, you punish sufficiently grave evil. Right. So there's a sense of proportionality baked yes. into it. Um, one thing to note is that the definition of a justified war is not simply, as it very often is in international law, self-defense. The just war tradition will argue um, that there may be cases in which it's not appropriate to defend yourself. Um, mm -hmm. So today is a fairly grim day. Um, right. uh, 
Russia has just unjustly uh, invaded the Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is fighting back. The Russians cannot now claim self-defense. Like, oh, you know, we're just defending ourselves. No, they they launched an attack. They have no right to defend themselves. Um, So self-defense has never been um, a sufficiently justifying claim. There have to be other other things involved. And then the third day, ontological category is that you have to have the right intent when you fight. You say not ontological, but deontological. Deontological. So can you define that? Yep. Uh, th- these these are um, non-negotiables. Okay. You know, th- these things have to be in place in order for the war to, to be appropriate. Gotcha. Um, deontological sh- should also suggest that if these things are in place, not only is the war permitted, but it's probably obligatory. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so there is a kind of moral constraint, both um, if these aren't in place, you can't launch a war. Um, and even that I'm gonna qualify. I shouldn't have said launch a war because if these things are in place, you're not launching the war, you're responding to a war that's been right. Um, but it's also constraining you in another way that if these things are in place, these conditions, you need to do something about it, right? right? Um, and it might not mean war, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but this will point to a need to intervene. So the, the third deontological category, the thing that has to be there is you have to have a right intent. And this is always simply your intention is, is peace. Uh, you aim toward peace. Yeah. Um, you don't go to war for territorial aggrand- you know, acquisitions. Um, you don't go for self-aggrandizement. Um, you don't go for purely vengeance. Uh, you go ideally uh, to win peace with your enemy. And th- that's your intent. It doesn't suggest that that has to happen um, because it's not always up to you. Your yeah. enemy has a say, but that should that should be present. And then there are some mitigating factors that you have to consider about when it's right to fight. So even if these things are in place, um, the world being what it is might counsel that it's it's imprudent to pursue. And these things will be things like, is it a last resort? Um, And last resort is often misconstrued. It sounds like it suggests that you should literally try everything you can to avoid war. Um, This can also be an imaginative project, simply saying, you know, look, um, can we legitimately consider other options and evaluate whether or not they're likely to succeed? There are certain circumstances where either you don't have the time to try things or you know with a practical certainty this isn't going to work. But is it the last resort, right? You don't want to launch the destructiveness of war unless there's really no other option to, to overturn the reasons for which you're going. Um, another one is is a sense of a proportionality of ends. Um, will going to war result in sufficiently greater goods than harms? That also has to be weighed against the prospect, will not going to war result in sufficiently greater goods than harms? Because sometimes that's reversed. Um, and with proportionality of ends, what I like to add into that is that you need to consider the amount of force that will be required in order to achieve a decisive victory. And for this, I kind of fall back to the right intent category that says, look, if your end is peace, history teaches us that most often warring parties can have peace with one another when one or both of them have sufficiently, um, have been sufficiently beaten to the point that they recognize that continuing the conflict is simply not an option. Um, and we can get into, into how that plays out. For me, one of the most dramatic instances of that um, was the bombing of Hiroshima and right. Nagasaki, 
um, which convinced the Japanese that it was time to stand down. And if you look at the peace that we have with them, you know, 77, eight years later, um, I, think it's, I think it's a good example of how decisiveness is an implication of just war. Mm. And then the last category in the, in the when is it right to fight um, is the, uh, you know, the, the probability of success. Um, so can you aim at a decisive victory with any real hope of succeeding? And if it turns out that I have a right cause, I've got the right intent, I've got the proper authority, I've tried everything else, um, it'll be proportionate if we win, but we have no chance of winning this thing. Mm. Then in certain circumstances, um, you bemoan you know, the, the conditions of the world and you stand down because maybe it's unjust or at least imprudent to you know, to go through a war knowing that you have no chance of succeeding. Now, there may be, be times where you do that, um, but it might, you know, it might be imprudent to do that. So that's the use ad bellum. I can stop there. Yeah, let me uh, stop the first second. That's really good. I know I asked a huge question that you've spent your life dedicated to. So um, this is, for those who are, who are listening, maybe, maybe that's an overwhelming answer. I just wanted you to hold back and go back and listen to it again. But this okay. is something that is outlined during like here at Wesley Biblical Seminary in our philosophical theology courses. Generally, we're going to cover this, or, or maybe you just take an ethics course. I mean, what Mark just outlined for us really well, really concisely, is kind of the basic tenets of just war theory. And I, I haven't heard it done so quickly, so concisely, so helpfully. So thank you. Um, what I'm... Uh, I want to, um, before I get to the other side of that, or you could choose to do this later if you want to explain something else, but we right now, this is February 24th, 2022. This, last night I went to bed, a notification came to, to my phone that there was an attack and you already alluded to that. Maybe that's a good, I mean, time for us to pray, obviously, but a good case study for what, what should be done at the national level, at the governmental type of level. Right. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I don't know where to begin with that. Um, so, obviously, we're referencing Ukraine. Um, are, are you asking, what do we do now? Yeah, or, so is is this a moment? Um, is is this opportunity to work, work through a theory like this right. and have a response? Now, obviously, we're talking sure. about statecraft. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, good. So, so big caveat, and I hate it when people give caveats, and so I'm, I'm almost hesitant to do this, but I'm not a policy guy, right? And, okay. and an awful lot of this, but I'm, that's not going to stop me, because you know, <laughs> I'm an academic. Why should it stop me? Uh, the caveat is this, is that, and if we get into this discussion of Christian realism, this will come back right, to it. Right. The first job of an ethicist of any stripe, especially a Christian ethicist, has to be having as accurate an understanding of the facts on the ground as you can have mm -hmm. um, before you just start pontificating. And facts are notoriously difficult to come by. Right. Um, and especially in international relations, when I don't have access to that level of classified information to be able to adjudicate these things, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Um, coupled with the fact that the historic complexities in that part of the world are profound. Um, there's a lot that I simply don't know. However much time right. I've spent there, you know, I, how, et cetera. But let's walk through it. Um, obviously, the United States um, and the world community as a large has, has a legitimate authority here, I think. This will take a little bit of qualification. Um, there's a big question within international law, let's say. I alluded to earlier that one of the, the primary reasons you, you fight in international law is self-defense. Right. Well, right now, we, 
at least with a thin understanding of what it means, we are not under threat, we being the American public, right? The Ukraine, they've been attacked, that's too bad, but that's not really us, so how can we claim self-defense? Well, just war tradition says that's insufficient. Like boundaries, it's a very Westphalian thing. Um, Augustine wasn't talking you know, about international boundaries in the way that we would talk about them. Um, so because just war tradition predates that, just war tradition, I think, is best understood as saying, you know, look, there are times where you simply intervene to protect the innocent, just as if you or I were walking down the street and we saw somebody being innocently assaulted, um, we ought to intervene. And how we ought to be intervene will depend on the strength we have and the other options that are available, all sorts of things. But we have the authority um, to be able to tell Putin no. And I think we have the authority, I'm not going to say anything about capacity in the moment, we have the authority to stop Putin wow. from doing what he's doing if we believe with good reason that what he's doing is sufficiently wrong that it warrants being stopped. Mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm. So we have the right authority. We have a just cause. you know. And here's where it gets tricky because you know I've got Russian friends who will probably email me if they happen to watch this and they will give me the justifying reasons for why they they were right to launch their invasion, their unjust aggressive invasion. Right. Um, but I, you know, I think most of the Western com international community looks at that and says uh, the, the sovereign space of Ukraine was unjustly invaded. Um, innocent people are being aggressed against. And here uh, we can say innocent people, not simply civilians, but because the, the Ukrainian military um, is an innocent party to this, suffering an unjust attack, um, Russian soldiers do not have the moral right, nor the legal right, to kill Ukrainian soldiers. Mm. So at this point, all those people in the Ukraine, even the ones who are fighting the Russians, are innocent under this understanding of what it means to fight a just war. So we have a just cause. Um, the innocent are being assaulted. They de deserve to be defended. An injustice has been wrecked. It deserves to be rectified. And there is an evil going on that deserves to be overturned. Mm. Um, would we have the right intention? You know, this this is a little bit, this is a weird thing because it, it, it asks you to kind of get into the interiority of, yeah. you know, the nation. Um, so it's to some degree um, a self-check. Um, you know, if I'm President Biden, why am I going to war? Do I just want to stick it to Putin? Do I want to rise or a bump in the polls in my right, approval right, rating? Right. Things like that. Those would be unjustified reasons. Economic, um, like benefit, whatever. I mean, if there could be economic benefit to war or whatever. Co yeah. Correct. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a self-check. Um, but the reality of your intention begins to play out on the battlefield. How do you, how do you direct the fight, et cetera? So, Obviously, I think the right intent could be had here. We simply want to restore peace to the region. Um, it'd be lovely, but it seems increasingly doubtful that we can bring Putin into a sphere of friendship again, or at least you know, non-belligerence. But I think all those things are in place. I think the deontological categories would be in place for us to fight Russia in order to protect Ukraine. Now you get into all sorts of prudential categories. Right. Um, and one of those facts on the ground that we talked about is the fact that the Russian army is quite big. Um, it will not beat us in a conventional fight. War is always contingent, but in all likelihood, they could not beat us 
in a in a in a conventional fight. They could not defeat NATO in a conventional right, fight. Right, right. Um, I think there's some chance that the Ukrainians are going to bloody them so much that they withdraw. That's probably hopelessly naive. Um, but the fact remains is that they have nuclear weapons, mm. and that has to dictate response. Um, and I don't know that anybody is sufficiently certain that Putin would not utilize them. And so that begins to unfortunately limit the goods that you can do in the world. That simply becomes a sad fact of reality that if the bully is powerful enough, then resisting the bully in certain ways um, might be so destructive uh, that it's imprudent to do. So there's that. Um, you know, and then there's then there's questions of if you respond um, and get tied down over Ukraine, what is China going to do? I think most of the world is holding its breath, expecting at any moment now to get the notification that you know Taiwan is now under assault, right? Wow. Um, if I was a Chinese despot, I'd be waiting to pull the trigger on it, right? Sure. And so there's there's all these prudential concerns and considerations that have to come in where you evaluate, you're trying to evaluate what is Putin really up to. And here's where you know those who know far more about the region than I do have to be relied upon to give good, honest, sound, sober advice. Um, is Putin going to be content with just this little section of Ukraine right. that he's suggested are the breakaway regions that he's fighting in support of? The full-scale invasion seems to overdo the claim that that's all he's after. But so, some people think that's all he's after. If that's all he's after, um, you know, maybe be, given the realities of the world, we unfortunately take that hit, or we, you know, we, yeah. we compel the Ukrainians to unfortunately take that hit. Um, does he want all of Ukraine? Is it Ukraine or is it all the former republics? Right, exactly. um, you know, yeah. less than a week ago, he demanded that NATO withdraw from the 12 or 13 republics that came into NATO after the Iron Curtain fell. Yeah, sure. um, that's unacceptable. Um, that can't happen. Uh, so, you know, and then you couple all of that speculation with how we respond to Ukraine will give Putin a sense of how far he can push things, right? So we, you know, if what we decide is safe or sanctions, then they have to be sanctions that make him bleed, right? right? They have to be sufficiently grave. And here I'd, I'd have to dig through um, the news reports because I, I don't have a, a firm understanding. Are. Yeah, um, like you know, financial, have we put embargoes, right? Yeah, yeah, know. all those type of things are how they hold people back. So exactly. it's interesting, like this. What we're what we're kind of working through. I'm so thankful, like to have your insight in this too. You, a Providence Journal that you you edit, is this or um, uh, brings this perspective of Christian realism. Like I think right. we're what we're doing right now, or what you're doing as we're analyzing this is dealing with reality as it is and trying to find the best response that right. Christians can make and Christians can make as a, as a, as a, as a government responds as a appropriate power, as you say, like the sovereign sort of entity can do. So I, I don't mean to jump too quickly to that, but I'm interested. Okay. So what, what is Christian realism? Yeah, it's a good question. I, uh, so break it down into its two obvious categories. It's Christian in the sense that it tries to harness classical Christian doctrine, classical Christian beliefs, as it thinks about a number of things, in my perspective, mostly foreign policy, um, but law and public life, you know, writ large. So it's Christian in that sense. 
And then it's realistic or it, it exercises realism in the sense that it rejects utopianism uh, or naive idealism as it goes about evaluating the actions that one ought to take in the world. So in that sense, as it thinks about law and ethics and political public life, it's both Christian and realist in its disposition. So it's a, you know, it's not a solid school of thought per se. It's more a political persuasion. It's a, it's a way of, you know, trying to view the world. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of qualified realism. Realism traditionally suggests that morality has no real place in political life. Uh, Christian realism wants to say, yeah, not, not so fast, actually. Morality has a role, um, but that doesn't mean to suggest, you know, we're pie in the sky utopians. So the response to kind of like anti-realism um, is one that comes from like, there's a variety of kind of popular voices, I think, describing that in the theological, biblical world, kind of like the evangelical subculture. What is their, what, what is, if, given being as charitable as possible, what's their response to uh, Christian realism? Yeah, and we'll, so. And then we'll talk about that. Like, yeah, so. I'm putting on my charity hat here. So the response is, you know, their mo most persuasive response is going to be something like, I think, um, you know, look, the, the world tries power all the time. And you might have noticed it hasn't really worked out all that well. And so what, what Christ counseled and what therefore the Christ followers of the church should counsel is an alternative community right, that is right. dedicated not to the sword, um, but to love. Right, right. And you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm overqualifying everything in my head because I, I you know, my, my problem is this I have a lot of dear pacifist friends. Right. Um, C.S. Lewis says, he respects an honest pacifist. He simply thinks he's entirely wrong. My problem, especially on days like today, especially when I think of my study of the Holocaust, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to indulge in another segue. The first time I was at Auschwitz, actually the second time I was at Auschwitz, it was uh, to observe the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camp. And at the end of the formal ceremonies, they began to read the names of all the dead. And they had dedicated themselves to read the names of all the dead until all 1.2 million names wow. were read. Now, it's a little bit of a, it, that couldn't have happened that way because we don't have all the names of the dead at Auschwitz, but we estimate it was 1.2 million. My buddy and I tried to figure out how long it would have taken them to read the names of 1.2 million victims. Mm. And we estimated that if you take a second a name, then to read 1.2 million names would have taken you 13.8 days. Wow. So it's 13.8 days of lost souls, all of whom had names, all of them whom had families, every one of which was loved by God and made in his image. Yeah. So actually, um, if I'm honest, I don't respect an honest pacifist. Mm. Um, at the point of their pacifism. I simply don't. I don't respect it as a credible means of moving Christianly and charitably through the world. I respect the intent. I respect the idealism. I'm drawn by it at times. 
um, when I get so exhausted at the belligerence. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, it is so unrealistic and it is so world denying. And some might argue that that's its strength, um, that right, I don't right. think it's a, it's a credible Christian response to the world. And therefore, I, I don't respect it. Um, like because right it now, does would, it be would the right thing to do to love Putin more? You know, to, right. to go to him, right. to turn the other cheek a few more times? Is that right. going to be the right response for the people of Ukraine? You know, sorry to and, interrupt and you there. He, he, no, no, no. That that's that that's driving the point home is um we need to stop 13.8 days. It seems like right. that Christians cannot in fact be loving if you have no if what you counsel has no real means of stopping 13.8 days. Now the response might be look, if um you know if uh, the Nazis were following Christ, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened. Granted, that's totally true. Um, but until that sweet day comes, um, they weren't. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and they didn't stop the Holocaust. And so we need something that will stop 14 days. We need something that will stop day one. And just to, just to kind of meld our intentions, um, in one sense, I would say to you, um, Andy, yes, uh, our job is to love Putin more. Absolutely. But then you have to ask yourself, what's love look like in this situation? Right. right. And so the Christian realist, the just war scholar, Mark Levecki, um, is absolutely in agreement with his pacifist friends who say our duty is to love our enemies. I absolutely believe that with every ounce of my being. It's just that love looks differently in different circumstances. And those circumstances are not always up to us. Um, as a father, when I discipline my children, um, I do so, uh, I better be doing so as an act of love, yes. because I do not want them to grow into the kinds of people who do whatever it is that I'm disciplining them against. Um, why don't I want them to be the kind of people who do wrong things? Well, the best reason I have is because I love them and I want them to flourish and human beings cannot flourish um, in any old way. We flourish only um, when we live in the ways that we were created to live. And that means that ideally, we become recognizable as sons and daughters of God. And that does not happen in any old way. It does not happen by invading your neighbor without cause. And so to love Putin, um, in the last resort, which is one of the just war requirements, might well mean stopping him from doing evil. And if a harsh word won't stop him, use more force, all the way to the point where we may be called as Christians to love our enemies to death. Mm -hmm. And I do not think that's a contradiction of love. That is a right. manifestation of love in the last resort. And it should be heartbreaking. It should um, fill you with grief and sorrow, but it should not stop you from doing those things that need to be done. Um, never forgetting, of course, that by loving Putin, we also have to be loving the Ukrainian people. Right. Mercy always costs somebody something. The cross teaches us that. Yes. And it's not right, it seems to me, to show mercy toward a Putin if that means that the Ukrainian people will pay the costs of that mercy. So right. the love that I show my innocent victim neighbor and the love that I show my enemy neighbor um, will not be the same kind of love, but I must love them both. Mm. You know, my pacifist friends will often ask me, how can you counsel 
killing someone made in the image of God. And I say the only reason I could counsel that is because uh, not killing someone made in the image of God, if it means allowing them to kill an innocent person made in the image of God, that's, that's just unacceptable. I know I have to love both my enemy neighbor and my innocent victim neighbor, um, but I can't love them both in the same way at the same time. Right. This is a, it comes to even the, the theological questions we have surrounding the idea of evangelism in general. Like we, if we believe right. that such a thing exists as hell, and, and I do, I affirm uh, an existence of hell and an existence of eternal life, uh, of heaven, of a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, the, it's hard to it's hard to say. And, and it, this has been on my podcast before. So we've talked about the sexual revolution. That a loving way to respond to people who are on a path to not participate in a new heavens and a new earth to hell. If that's the case, the loving response is to tell the truth. Um, right. And this, and it might be, uh, we we just can't sit back and like the existence of of this reality causes a different action. In our life now, and, and some people would respond like, "No, that's not your place. It's not your place." Yeah. Well, if I'm a, I'm saying that this is real, that this is something that's true. What would be the the correct response for me, except for to tell them what would help them in the long run? I, I think too, it's a little short sighted in light of eternity to assume that this is the end for all right. people. Like there is more, as in the name of my podcast, more to the story. There's more to the story of our life than just what happens in this life. I, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I'm sometimes charged, I'm somewhat hesitant to say this because I'm sometimes charged with having a theological position that gives me a certain kind of out that other people don't have. And the theological position is this. I'm not at all convinced that, um, you know, before my life's spark goes out, I have to make a decision for Jesus or not. Mm. I think Jesus is the only way to heaven. Please, everybody hear me say that. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it means to accept Jesus. I know some of the ways. Um, I don't know what it means in the nth degree. And I'm not convinced that I don't have an opportunity to accept him when I think I will see him face to face after my death, right? Um, I realize some people say, no, if, if my heart stops now and I drop dead and I go cold and I haven't accepted Jesus, I'm bound for hell. I get that. And they might have arguably a harder time with a just war ethic that says you can love your enemy to death sure, sure, because yeah. how does it aid his flourishing if I've just snuffed out any opportunity for, for heaven? Right. Um, one, that's truly not up to me. I can only do the good that I, I can do in a particular moment. Um, never forgetting that, look, the whole reason we're talking about a just war is he's killing other people. And what about those people on and on and on. Um, but I have the absolute confidence that every human being will spend eternity exactly where they want to spend it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, that. Yeah, that I mean, and, and I know some people might head. be uneasy with that. And, I, and I'm not necessarily like we could, we could have a whole podcast about right. that. And we've, we've right. talked about those type of things in, 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 at Wesley Biblical Seminary. We're glad to it's talk good. to you about those things in systematic theology. I'm going to be teaching uh, systematic theology to our second portion where we talk about eschatology. And it certainly was within rather not this is like a, a position of an institution. The fate of the unevangelized is like right. a, just like Mark studies just war theory. There are people who think about the end of people, the end of ind individuals, and there there are evangelicals who affirm there who affirm the authority of scripture. 
who still affirm that there is some sort of post-mortem evangelism opportunity for right. such people. So now, again, like that, don't take that as like me becoming a universalist. Like Mark said, and I thought right. that was good. You say like that that people will choose to be where they will choose to be. Like C.S. Lewis says, you know, in The Great Divorce, that the uh, the door to heaven, you know, is opens from the inside. You know, so right. like right. you're choose. There's a, a willful choice. To, to be in that place. I think, I don't know if that's, if that comes into the calculus of people as they, as they work through these decisions, but like, it, I just affirm it's not the end. And all of the injustice that our world experiences right now, like it, it, it won't, the scales won't be tipped back right. necessarily in this life. There's a lot of things that are unfair and unright, cancer, human trafficking, the like, but we do believe in a God who will make all things right. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, it's a bit of a, I, I don't want that to, to ease the tension too much, but it right. eases the tension, right? So our hands may well be tied in how we can respond to Putin in a way that doesn't blow up the world. Uh, and that, that, that should grieve us. Um, but Putin will not win, mm. right? We, at one level, we know that. Um, because you know, you're saying because we're so I'm not we because the United States and and NATO is so strong. No, I mean because God will win in the oh, end. <laughs> sorry, yes, Amen. I'm amen. going all sorry. the way forward. Oh, you, feel, you need to get to the <laughs> theology the there. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, Putin could hand it to us in a basket, right? Okay. It could be the end of the existence of the United States, right? And he will not win, right? Amen. Um, amen. We know that. Uh, I don't rest in that because I think God gave us government. Um, I have that on the authority of scripture uh, to protect the innocent, to right wrongs, to punish evil, all of that. And we do the good that we can when we can do it. Uh, and the good that we can't do, that's where we can then say, um, God will provide, mm. right? Um, God is in control of history. We are not. We know that our job is always only approximate. We will never eradicate evil in time. We can eradicate certain evils one at a time, um, and we could ratchet back other evils. Um, but we are always only a, a, a sort of a, a, a delaying force, right? Um, stewardship as we can exercise it now is always only gonna be an approximation of what it ought to be, and we know that. Um, and that's maybe not a lot of solace to the Ukrainians, um, although in another sense it it can be. Um, but yeah, every that's a good point. The, you think about it's that not the solace of what it, it ought to be, uh, what it's not. This this again points to something bigger, uh, and it's one of these kind of like basic responses about the existence of God. If there is a moral universe that ought to be, then right. like if we can think that, often called the ontological argument, if that exists, then we have a basis for affirming that 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 such a world does exist. Correct. I I go back to David when he was fasting over the potential death of his son, yeah. right, and yeah. he was fearful that God was going to take his son. And he's doing everything he can to to you know to prevent that from happening. And when he's alerted that his son has died, he goes and he washes and he eats, and he gets rebuked for it. And they're saying like, when your son was still alive, you were fasting, you were doing this, and now he's dead. What are you doing? And he says something to the effect of, when he was alive, there was something that I thought I could do to prevent his death. Now that he's died, I know I will see him again. 
Mm. Right. And so there's this, there's this tension of, I will do everything I can now um, to, and not everything I can qualified um, to bring about the good now. And even if I fail, I know that all will be well Yes, in time. Yeah. Boy, I mean, that, that, that is a positive word in the midst of on a dark day for the world as we're dealing with this aggression that's coming from Russia. Um, I mean, I, 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 we're running out of time, but I would, I would love, in, in general, this discussion, and, and it's interesting, this is going to come right on the heels of our other discussion where he talked about violence in the Old Testament. And mm. it's like, so it's interesting, like I have these two kind of war podcasts right in a row in a, in a, in a time where we're dealing with this. Um, what, what, you kind of already responded to it. You mentioned, as, uh, I mentioned Hauerwas. Any, yeah. any general response uh, to his line of argumentation? You kind of hit it already, but anything else you'd like to add there? I've, I've hit it already, but there, there's one that, uh, that, that comes from an outstanding book called uh, In Defense of War uh, by an Oxford professor, Nigel Bigger. Right, right. And he's got a chapter in there on, on love. I think that's where he, he talks about this. But he responds to this idea that the Christian church can be an alternative community. And that, you know, a certain, because seen in a certain way, the solace that a Christian can have is we could say, well, now look, there is the government. We, we grant that and we need the government. Thank God we have it. Um, but what the Christian community can do is we can provide an alternative to the sword. And so the world can see both at play. And, you know, they could gesture to the two kingdoms doctrine, the two cities doctrine, things like this to try to, to try to carve a space for this. Um, the response I have to that coming, coming out of how, how bigger phrases, it goes something like this is that um, if this alternative community to which Hauerwas suggests Christians have been called is truly viable, if it's truly something that can work within history, then one would think that God would have called um, us to that, by us I mean everyone, rather than to give us the government with the sword and the responsibilities that the government with the sword has. Why do I say that? Well, because apparently the reason we want to be the alternative community is because this coercive community um, does such seemingly diabolical work that Christians ought not to do. But if that coercive community is necessary, um, and the only way that I can be an alternative community at all is to rest under the security umbrella of this coercive community, then it seems that I am rejecting something in, in practice, what I require um, or depend upon in, in principle. Or I'm, I'm rejecting in principle something that I, I require in practice. Um, I can't have my alternative community if these non-Christians aren't doing these terribly dirty things with the sword. Um, and so for Christians to rely upon something right. um, that they reject as being unworthy of a Christian um, seems at least a, a gross act of uncharity. Um, Let me see if I can say that in a more elementary fashion. And correct me if I got it wrong. Okay. So 
it's like like Christians exist as an alternative community, but there's a sense that they're almost dependent upon Absolutely. a state entity yep. to provide them peace so that they can exist in their alternate community. And if so all good people were pacifists, there would be no pacifists. Right, right, right. right? And so I rely on my non-Christian neighbor to protect me so I can be an alternative community, requiring wow. him to dirty his hands, um, to do those things that I am forbidden to do in order to keep me safe. And the crisis with this is that habits are habit forming, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I'm the non-Christian government worker or non-Christian soldier, um, the things that I do, I become habituated toward. And if what, if what I do is bad for my soul, then I habituate myself to doing things that are bad for my soul. And maybe that will lead to the guilt and shame that leads me to the cross. Um, but it may well lead me uh, to be insulated and inoculated against those things um, because I will have to callous my heart, callous my soul, and all sorts of things that might put my soul in peril. Um, I'm not a fiction writer, Andy, but if I was a fiction writer, I would write about a, a dystopian future in which um, the only people who had the moral philosophy sufficiently robust enough to fight would be Christians or theists. I think at the end of the day, it's it's only us who have wow. the grounds to hate the evil, bringing it back full circle. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a cause to hate Auschwitz. Um, and I think Amen. we have the yeah. grounds to know that protecting the innocent is can be a divine vocation. Um, interesting. And well, I would I, rather such an interesting Christian idea, like if you had an alternate universe where there was such a reality where there was everybody was a pacifist, but yet then there came this situation where people were responding in, in aggressive ways. Who is it that can respond? Who has the moral tools to do so? And it would be Christians. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, Mark, this is so good and so helpful to me, too, to think through this in such a systematic way. Um, I wish we had more time. And maybe I'll, maybe as things keep moving here with uh, with the Ukraine, um, maybe we can have you back on. Now, I always ask a question, which is completely unrelated to Just War Theory, I think. But the title of my podcast is More to the Story. The idea is like we go deeper on particular issues. We get more of the story. But also, it's theologically connected to our institution that we believe there's more than just being saved from your sins, that God mm. calls us to experience sanctifying grace and to, there's more to the story of salvation. But is there more to the story of Mark Lebecki? Is there something else that you don't get to talk about very often or people don't know about you? <laughs> is there more to me? Um, you know, look, the, the, the primary reason, I think, um, if I knew, if I could accurately read my heart, the, the, the only reason I bother with this stuff, um, I have two kids. I love those kids. I want them to grow up in a world that is as conducive to their flourishing as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I won't do everything to bring that world about, right? There are some things that, you know, that would so violate other norms that I won't do. Um, but I love them and I want them to live in a world that, that is conducive to their flourishing. And so at, you know, I'd much prefer instead of reading books on war uh, to be out in the woods with them, uh, you know. What are their names? How old are they? Uh, I'm not actually going to say that on, on oh, sorry. social media. I'm sorry, but I have a boy oh, no, and a no girl. Problem. They're very sweet. Um, one's 15, one's 13. Uh, so they're, you know, they're at a very good age for all those things. I was raised in Alaska. And so wow. I love the woods. I love the outdoors. And um, I'm trying to instill the same love uh, for the outdoors in them. 
Uh, yeah. so forgive me for yeah. asking for their names. I didn't even think about that. I but I, I have a 15 and 13 year old boys as well. Well, one, one 14 turning 15 soon and they love the outdoors. Oh my goodness. They are out there exactly. all the time. So we have to get them together sometime. Absolutely. That'd be fun. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mark. Where can people find stuff about you? Where are you online? Uh, providencemag.com. Okay. Um, and I think if you Google my name, I think only good things will pop up. But uh, you could probably just Google the name and find some writings that I've done elsewhere, et cetera. But uh, I guess my my home at, for now is ProvidenceMag.com. Um, that's where you can find it. Yeah, and you can find it in the show notes. There's a, I mean, both names, Mark and Levecki, are not spelled in ways that you, you might need to take a look to, to see how they're spelled. But Mark, thanks so much for your time. It means a lot to us. And um, we appreciate the work you're doing uh, at Providence and look forward to being enriched by it in the future. Well, great. Thank you for this. Thank you for the good questions and great conversation. Thank you.